Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. I was introduced to Krista Caron by my close friend Harlan Stone, the former North American chairman of CSM Sport and Entertainment. All he said was, you have to meet her. And that was enough for me. After a 30-minute meet and greet on Zoom, she said yes to my invitation to be today's guest. And trust me, folks, this is a really good one. Krista's strategic and operational expertise with 20 years of global C-suite experience in developing new economy businesses, building brands, monetizing intellectual property, energizing teams, and generating profitable revenue has stood her well. All those roles have included a variety of posts, including president of Group 9 Media, COO at WPP's Group SJR, CMO for the Boston 2024 Partnership. That was the organization charged with developing Boston's bid for the 2024 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Other posts included head of brand marketing and communications at Fidelity Investments, and 17 years, get this, 17 years with Xerox, including the CMO role, helping to bring that story company into the 21st century. Currently, she's the president of CSM Sport and Entertainment here in North America, a global integrated partnership and marketing consultancy that partners with major sports leagues like the PGA, the NFL, NASCAR, the WTA, Formula E, and Major League Baseball. Rights holders including Cirque du Soleil, and brand clients that include City, Verizon, Unilever, and Coca-Cola, all with a clear focus to connect consumers through passion points via extraordinary experiences. Krista, thanks so much for being here and welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Xerox is a storied brand. We had to shift a consumer mindset from analog to digital and quite frankly, re-engineer an entire supply chain to start leaning away from what really had been a cash cow in the analog business to bringing people into a digital landscape. So I realize right now a defining point in my career to be part of that company at the time and try to shift legacy perceptions or really try to disrupt legacy perceptions of the Xerox brand as just the copier company when in fact Xerox was the leading company trying to drive digital transition in offices. And was there an underlying portfolio of sort of intellectual property or patents that you all relied on to sort of make that conversion? Very, very much so. The, the strongest IP that Xerox had was a patent pipeline that dated back several decades. And many people are familiar with the Palo Alto Research Center that still exists today and is still the place where massive innovation is born. And the second most valuable piece of intellectual property was the brand. Right. The Xerox brand is known incredibly all over the world. And the brand gave us permission 
to be quite creative in how we manage the company and how we manage the marketing. However, I'd go back to like shifting the legacy perceptions of the brand was the biggest marketing challenge I ever faced. Not surprising. Because it was so wedded in people's brain as to copy, you know, Xerox really did become a verb and it's hard to get people to think otherwise. That's a challenging thing. I experienced that in my early days in business. I was the keeper of the trademark at Speedo Swimwear and in much the same way that Kleenex tissue needed to call out that it was Kleenex tissue and that not every tissue was a Kleenex, not every photocopy was a Xerox. And I agree with you that the most powerful thing about Xerox is that trademark. So good for you. Yeah, it gives you a great appreciation for the integrity of brand, right? And I think that's an important thing for all marketers to understand. And especially for me, very, very early in my career to develop that type of respect and appreciation for how brands are built and how they're nurtured over time. And it was that sensitivity, understanding, experience, and awareness of the importance of brand and platforming the brand, kind of what got you to Fidelity and WPP? Sure. I mean, it definitely got me to Fidelity. Absolutely. I mean, the reason I left Xerox to go to the Fidelity opportunity was really to try to get myself into an industry that wasn't going to be facing the secular headwinds that a business like Xerox was facing. And Fidelity is really the gold standard in asset management, the gold standard in financial services. So for me, the fact that the Fidelity brand had been built and nurtured by a family for generations, it's in its third generation of ownership, was incredibly compelling because there was such integrity to what the brand stood for within a family, then that then translated to all of the employees and to many of our clients as well. So I'm going to take that as a real positive. The family created a long-term culture that rewarded employees. The employees, maybe for lack of a better term, felt like they were a part of the family? Yeah, I mean, I think that for a place like Fidelity, which is most people don't even realize it's a family business. It's one of the largest family businesses in in the world. And it was a special place to be because the family did very much value their employees and instilled in the culture the importance of the integrity of the values of the organization. You know, when you're a financial services company and you talk about integrity, That is massively important because you're taking care of people's financial futures. Um, And so Fidelity as a company had to really stand for the definition of its name as well. Understood. That's great to hear. You move then to WPP and anyone familiar with the world of large agency holding companies would understand the sort of approach that Sir Martin, when he was the chairman, took to the family of agencies under his leadership. And that was essentially, and I have some experience with WPP, kind of a dog-eat-dog environment, if I can even use that terminology, because he really expected each agency head to win a battle, even if that agency was competing against one, two, or three other WPP shops, correct? Sure. Yeah, I know. That was definitely internal competition with how that whole portfolio of companies was was built. And there is a a bit of genius in that as well. I know we're going to talk a little bit about my time working for the Boston Olympics, but, but actually that journey was what eventually brought me into 
an agency role. I, I, people often joke that I did this reverse commute. Typically you start an agency and you go to a brand. And I started in being a chief marketing officer of brands and that went into the agency world. But one of the reasons I went into the agency world was because of the acceleration of digital and marketing and feeling like I had been a classically trained marketer who had had success at Xerox and Fidelity, but I still didn't have enough confidence that I was asking the right questions and really kind of felt like, wow, if I go into the agency world and I start working with a multitude of clients, especially in the consumer in the CPG world, I can take a masterclass in digital, if you will, right? Like just immerse myself as a practitioner while also helping to manage this agency that was going through a period of accelerated growth. So that was my mindset around actually entering a digital content agency is let me learn as much as I possibly can so that when I go back to a brand role or go into my next role, I'm going to be much more intuitive about asking the right questions and knowing or having a gut feel that I'm getting the right answers as well, because digital was just operating at warp speed. And I think a lot of marketers were being left behind because they didn't know if they were asking the right questions. Right. And it continues to operate at warp speed. So Mm -hmm. you felt like you got your MBA or maybe even your PhD then in digital at WPP? Yeah. I mean, I feel like between the role with the WPP agency, but then more importantly, going into digital media at a point in my career where I had this classically trained background in marketing and then just really dove head first into a digital ecosystem, I have tremendous confidence in the fact that I'm much more not just conversant, but an active practitioner in everything as it relates to the full gamut of digital marketing. And that's hugely helpful for me now as a leader of an organization that sometimes your clients are bringing you into a digital sphere Sometimes it's a combination of in-person experiences, plus digital, plus virtual, whatever it may be. If I didn't have the benefit of those experiences, I don't think I could be as effective in the role as I hope to be every day. Um, So I often will encourage people who say, listen, that was a parallel path that I took for a couple of years, but it was very intentional to get a deep learning as to everything that was happening in the marketing environment. Well, the awareness of understanding yourself and, and sort of knowing what you don't know is is critical in a leadership role. That does two things. One, if you have the desire, you get very focused on what you don't know and you learn it. Secondarily, and perhaps maybe even as or more importantly at the senior leadership level, understanding what you don't know and being able to bring people in who have that capability that you trust fills out a management team in a great way. Yeah. But it also helps you have more confidence in the talent that you're hiring. Because again, in marketing in particular, there has been this rapid shift in how we look at marketing and just over the last 10 years, right? And so discussions around return on investment have changed radically. And when you are hiring people, you're going to go with your gut of, yeah, I know. I hope this person isn't just selling me a bag of goods. They actually really do understand what performance marketing is. They really do understand CAC. They really do understand the analytics behind defining audiences, whatever it may be. But for me, my assessment of talent is quite different because I've actually had the opportunity to be in the roles or to have just an active participatory role in how clients' digital businesses have been run. Right. That's that's hugely key. 
Before we dive into CSM, your current role, because that's really a fascinating one, I want to visit this Boston Olympic bid uh, <laughs> opportunity. That And so what possessed you to do that? And what did you learn there? And I mean, we all know that LA ultimately won the day. It's kind of a oddly brokered deal where two Olympic bids were awarded simultaneously, right? Paris for 2024 and LA for 2028. So now put your Boston Olympic hat on. Yeah. So I don't know if I should call it a midlife crisis or really what it was, but I was in Boston. I was working for Fidelity. I had an opportunity to participate in the marketing and the communications advisory council for the Boston Olympic bid, which was really kind of a volunteer role that the bid chairperson had reached out to a number of marketing leaders in Boston. And let me tell you, I just got sucked right in. I am a massive believer in the Olympic ideals. When I was at Xerox, I played an active role in the Olympic sponsorship that Xerox had for many, many years. I'd been to a number of the games, but also as the mother of a daughter, I felt strongly in the empowering aspect of, of Olympics for women's sports. You know, it's that one period, maybe with the exception of Women's World Cup, where we pause and we actually celebrate female athletes in ways that we just don't during the rest of the year, during these rest of the, the two-year cycles. So I loved the opportunity to bring Olympics to my new adopted hometown of Boston and decided to walk away from my corporate career. I had been in a corporate building for 20 years and was very proud of the success that I had there, but I was ready to try something new. So I joined the Boston Olympic bid full time and I sat down with my family and said, we're going to be all in on this. And if we're successful in bringing the, the games to Boston, we're going to have quite a ride. Unfortunately, the many people in Boston weren't as supportive of it as I was and the rest of our, our bid committee. And when you're part of an Olympic bid, you know, it's somewhat analogous to being part of a, a political campaign. You're running a campaign locally to try to engage the citizens about why this is a great thing to do for Boston. And you're also running an international marketing campaign to the IOC members, positioning your city as a great host city for the games. And I loved the dichotomy of that marketing challenge, but Bostonians just really couldn't wrap their head around it. And there were a number of factors why, but ultimately the mayor of Boston pulled the plug on the bid and said that he was not supportive and really couldn't back the bid. And if the mayor can't back it, then the rest of the organizing committee really doesn't have a chance. So unfortunately, it was not successful. It was a failure, but I'll tell you what, I don't regret a minute of it. Um, I joke that I have some great Boston 2024 swag that I will be proudly wearing during the Paris 2024 games. I also learned a lot about myself. I learned about what it takes to operate in a really gritty startup environment, while also the importance of experience and expertise and presence when you're developing an international marketing campaign. And I took that experience and started applying it to the next chapter of my career and kind of made a decision that I couldn't go back into a corporate building after that because the Olympics just gave me a whole new point of view on where I wanted to take my career. And that was definitely much more in operational leadership with a strong marketing foundation. Great story. I can totally relate to the international marketing campaign aspects of an Olympic bid. I have some of that in my own history and DNA. Back in the day, I was not only a co-founder of the International Triathlon Union, but its first treasurer. 
And the objective was very clear and simple. Get triathlon on the Olympic program as soon as possible. So myself and the then president of the ITU, now deceased, Les McDonald, a Canadian from Vancouver, set about on a three-year campaign chasing the Olympic Committee all over the world. And I know you did much of the same thing because every time the IOC executive group met, you needed to be there, shake hands, tell them what you were doing in Boston, amplify the importance and the credibility and the authenticity and the capability, really, of Boston to host those games. And we were doing the same thing with the sport of triathlon. And interestingly, along the way, this was at the same time Salt Lake City was aggressively pitching for the 2002 Winter Games. So every time we showed up, the same four or five people from Salt Lake City would show up. And we got to be, you know, good friends with them because we were all doing the same thing. And that was essentially pitching our wares to the IOC. Yeah. Well, and I do think that the IOC decision to award two games at once was brilliant. I hope it's something that they continue to do. The cost and the effort and the energy that goes behind these Olympic bids is not really a sustainable business model for the bid committees for the IOC for a number, a number of reasons, which is probably a completely separate podcast. But the uh, the awarding Paris and then L.A. Games is uh, a smart and historic decision on behalf of the IOC, for sure. No, I completely agree with that. And you're right. We could do a whole podcast on that alone. The Olympics gets on you, it gets in you, and it just doesn't go away for all the reasons mm -hmm. you just described. So now you're at CSM, which does have tethers into the Olympic movement, whether it's you know an international federation or a World Cup or an event or a league or a team or whatever. So... Here yeah. you are now, what, a year into your role as president of the yeah. North American CSM group. How'd you get there and share with us, you know, how this past year has been? I can't imagine it, it's been, you know, different from lots of others in the live event business and where you see CSM going from here. Yeah, so it was just probably about 14 months ago, I guess, that I was um, running this digital media company, Group 9 Media, which is a portfolio company of a number of media brands like the Dodo and Thrillist and Pop Sugar, and now this, Seeker, and absolutely loving what we were doing in that space. When I had started to work with one of the organizations within CSM to do a experience for one of our media brands. And so was introduced to Dan Mannix, who at the time was running CSM North America. And just in a number of discussions, he started to really pique my interest in what was happening within their space. And I have to say, just through all of my experiences, is 100% leading into what my experience with the Olympics I've always had such a passion for sports and sports partnerships. And I started to think about the stability of the industry and thinking, man, even in tough economic recessions, fans still want to go to games, right? Audiences still are sitting in the stands applauding entertainers. It just is a very, very resilient industry. And I massively believed in the power of experience. And I saw that with the media company I was part of is this, you know, super maniacally engaged fan base. So when the opportunity came up to, to join CSM as president, it was literally, you know, around this time last year of, 
what could possibly go? What could stop sports? I mean, I'm serious. This is it's just such an amazing conversation as I was telling people that I was joining CSM and really talking up live experiences. We all love live experiences. We love uniting through through our common fan bases and sports has survived so many difficult times in our moment's history. It's a unifying force, yada, yada, yada. So fast forward, we have now figured out what is the one thing that can bring sports to a screeching halt. But we've also been reminded that it is sports that can unify us as well. And we've seen the best and the worst of that in, in one year, right? So early March, sports comes to a screeching halt. And boy, do we all really crave it to come back. And so even while there's not fans and stands, we saw the creativity of the NBAs. We saw the creativity of motorsports. We saw the creativity of NWSL or LPGA or PGA, whatever you league you want to call, say, no, we're still going to operate. We're going to figure out a way to do it through COVID safe protocols. And we're going to unite our fans in, in different ways. So it's been a challenging year for sure. But the principles of why I joined this company stay the same. And it is the power of experience, the power of live experience and the unifying nature of sport that I think is absolutely essential to communities all around the world. How much pent-up demand do you think there is for that live experience for when a fan can go through a turnstile and sit in a seat and watch a game or a match and order a hot dog and a beer? Yeah, I mean, I have it. My husband certainly can't wait to be in a New York Mets game, I can tell you that, or he wants to be in the Syracuse Orange Dome before too long. Certainly my son wants to be sitting at a New York Knicks game. I think there's pen up demand. We crave it and it'll be there. We just want to make sure that we feel safe. And I really think that we will. Well, I agree with that. And the leagues and teams and everybody sort of has that obligation to to do it. I know, for example, one of the things Live Nation came out with, I don't know, eight or so weeks ago was they're very aggressively planning a live event season starting sort of mid-summer, right? June, July. Yep. But one of their underlying criteria will be proof of vaccination. Yep. Yep, very fair. I'm wondering out loud if you see that as a requirement, for example, to re-engage with folks in stands at the NFL or the NBA going into arenas. I mean, obviously, as we watch the college football playoffs, particularly in the Southeast Conference, there have been fans in stands, not full, clearly, mm-hmm. but still they're letting people in. Mm-hmm. By the way, for people who are fans of motorsports, watch that industry because they were actually the first to come back in, in the U.S. and they have been increasingly bringing more fans and stands in a very, very healthy in, environment. And I think we'll continue to see that as the racing season starts this year as well. I think it's probably reasonable to expect some type of verification on vaccines. I don't have any insight as to what leagues are thinking about. I don't think that we as a nation know how effectively we're going to be able to deploy a verification system. But if it becomes something that's as easy as showing your driver's license, we all are pretty much accustomed to doing that when we before we step on an airplane. So is it going to become part of your ticket to enter? We'll see. But I I do think that 
for those of us who are very, very anxious to be part of live experiences again, we'd be willing to take that step. I sort of agree with you on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, as we live today and we live through what we're all going through, obviously, you can still show up places and you can still walk in the store. You can still do things. And if it's in closer quarters, you get, you know, your forehead zapped with the take your temperature thing and you verbally answer questions. You know, at the end of the day, a temperature is one thing. A vaccination is something quite different. Uh, So it all remains to be seen. I think posing the question is a fascinating one because at the end of the day, all of the constituent groups that CSM deals with, whether it's rights holders, leagues, teams, federations, brands, and potentially other agencies that brands might also engage alongside you, you have all of those questions to answer. So thought leadership there becomes a premium, I would think. Sure. And, you know, it may not be a one-size-fits-all solution either because each league operates a little bit differently. And, you know, you take a look at a golf tournament and potentially how you manage COVID safe or any type of contagion safe protocols would be much different than us all huddling at a basketball game, right? right. So and part of what we need to be much more conscious of is really taking a client first approach and understanding the audience, understanding that the dynamics of whether it's a tournament or a game or a league, whatever it may be, and potentially creating some bespoke solutions too. Obviously what we've seen in the U.S. is that you can walk into a different state and you're dealing with different protocols. You cross the pond and you go into different countries and you're going to be dealing with different protocols as well. Boy, do I wish I could wave a magic wand and say there's going to be a simple template for this. I don't, I think it's going to continue to be complex for quite a while. And our strength as an agency is going to be our ability to be quite agile and to be innovative so that we're creating bespoke solutions that are practical for the fans and practical for the leagues. Well, and actually that is a hallmark of CSM, the agility the ability to deal with inflections and navigate around them. I've always loved the way CSM has done that. So you are in exactly the right place. Oh, that's great. And by the way, everyone's had to be that throughout this year. When we talk about sports partnerships, it's all been all about agility and flexibility this year. For sure. Listen, Krista, we've got a few minutes left and there are some regular features we do with every one of our guests on the Best Boss Ever podcast series. So here we go. The favorite mistake you ever made, the favorite mistake is, I realize, an oxymoron, but it is an homage (laughs) to my favorite female artist, Sheryl Crow, who wrote a great song called My Favorite Mistake. So what's yours? There you go. Uh, Well, I think you'll appreciate this as a triathlete. Mine is like, don't go out of the chute too fast. So I'm a marathon runner, and I definitely learned that lesson of starting the race a little bit too quickly. So just the, the importance of pacing yourself is something that is is hard earned or or hard learned, I should say, but uh, it applies to almost everything that you do. It does. There's a reason they say it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Yeah, (laughs) right. But it applies to new jobs as well. That was definitely you walk into a new job and you're just like, oh, you want to run so quickly because you have so much energy. And then you realize you need to step back and listen and internalize everything that's going on in the company around you and then pace yourself and what's what's practical to be able to be achieved in short periods of time. That's great guidance. In, In a new environment like that, it's really important to figure out, as we spoke earlier, learning what you don't know and understanding 
you know, in the vernacular, who's who in the zoo, right? I mean, you got to figure out who, what, when, where, and why. And, and then it allows you to make more thoughtful decisions and, and lead from the front as opposed to lead from any other perspective. Yeah. Uh, your favorite female artist or band in the music world? Okay, I'm just going to totally date myself, but I think even if I was 20 or 30 years younger, I would say the same thing, and that's Carol King, one of the world's best songwriters. Totally agree with that. Do you have a favorite <laughs> Carol King song? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, the entire collection of Tapestry and Beautiful is a fabulous, fabulous show if you haven't already seen it. Backwater Jack, maybe? Love it. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. She's awesome, and uh, and I love that pick. Uh, your favorite food, dish, meal, because we all have to eat? I run so that I can eat coffee chip ice cream. That would be mine. Calories in, calories out, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With fresh blueberries sprinkled on top is like my ideal. Oh, that's a good one. That's mm-hmm. a really good one. Okay, the last one, and it's the pithy one, you know, because you've listened to a few of these, that that we sort of have a tagline that words matter. What you say, what you don't say, particularly as a leader, what you do, what you don't do, all matters. So do you have a favorite word that you spark to and why? And if you can, just put it in a little bit of context for us. Yeah, well, it's two words and it's thank you. And this definitely stems from from my father, who I think has always reminded me of the importance of gratitude. And as leaders, we we get to where we are because there's other people who have boosted us. And, and certainly, yeah, we get to where we are because of a lot of hard work, a lot of courage, a lot of bold decisions, a lot of empathy, a lot of risk taking. But ultimately, this notion of gratitude, I think, is incredibly undervalued and is one that in this year in particular, I think we all step back and realize what we have and and need to be grateful. So that power of perspective is something that typically fuels my gratitude. Well, that's a great way to end it, Krista. And thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. It's been wonderful meeting you, and um, and I love this whole discussion. So many thanks, Carl. Good way to start the year. My pleasure. Be well. Okay, you too. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter.